friends. Welcome to the Skyline Church podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. just before we jump into our message um, related to our staff team and our worship team. You know, last year when everything locked down, the world locked down, which just is kind of crazy now to think about being like a year out from that. Um, I, I don't know about you guys, but I think everybody had this sense of like, what is going to be, what's, what are things going to be when this is over? What is it going to look like and how do we sustain in the midst of it? And one of the just clear convictions really on from the Holy Spirit for our staff team is that we felt compelled to keep the fire burning at the center of the church. We just felt like we're like, just like that eternal flame that was in the temple that the priests would, would steward, we felt like God had called us to be priests so that no matter when people came back or how they came back, that the fire would be lit. They would come back to a joyful, vibrant, worshiping church whose eyes are on him and praise God because he did that. And so we're just so grateful to be here, to be with you, um, and to move forward into what God's doing on the earth because I think he is on the move in ways um, that frankly are, are kind of um, mind-blowing right now, the way I'm seeing God move in people's hearts and move um, in places. So with that, we're in First Timothy chapter 1 again. And we're going to start in verse 12. If you grab one of your pew Bibles or open up your Bible or your phone, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. We talked about last week um, about doctrine and about how Paul charges Timothy to go back to Ephesus and make sure that the people who are teaching false doctrines were challenged and confronted to be quiet and how important doctrine is, but actually almost as important as how we hold our doctrine and what our doctrine does in the church and how it's supposed to unify us in the main things. And Paul quickly moves from that into the thing that is the main thing of all the main things, right? I love that he quickly moves from like this thing about what the church should be like and how to unify them to his own personal story to orient the Ephesians on Jesus, right? Because all of doctrine, all the things we believe should lead back to him. We should find him at the base and he starts here, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. So Paul just starts saying, like, I'm so thankful for him giving me these things. All these things come from him. He just puts the, the spotlight back on Jesus, right? Because false teachers love the spotlight on themselves. They love the platforms. They love the attention. They love the applause. Paul's saying, like, no, 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 this is about him. He gave me the strength to do this. And even crazier is I formerly was his opponent. I was working against God. And I love, too, that Paul says here, he makes a clear delineation about who he was before Jesus and who he is now, right? So he's not, he's not dwelling on his former past as, like, this thing to kind of constantly live under his past. But he's reminding himself of what God has done. 
right? So, so Paul, uh, uh, David says in Psalm 51, he says, restore to me, Lord, the joy of my salvation. And friends, I think Paul here is, is doing this discipline of constantly returning to the foundation of his life in Jesus. He's reminding himself of who he was before Christ. Where, what would I be had it not been for Jesus showing up in my life? Man, my life would be so much different. He says, but I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul's just getting into touch with the core of his story, which is the grace of God poured out through Jesus on the cross. He just keeps coming back to saying like this whole thing, my entire life is grace. That's it. Without grace, things would be so much different. And his grace overflowed for me. And this really matters in the church, right? Because if you forget the grace of God that has overflowed for you, it's very likely you will forget the grace of God that overflowed for your neighbor, right? And so as we continually go back to the altar of where we met God, he reminds us of his grace. We like walk away from there reminded that other people have altars of grace in their lives too. They, they have been forgiven, known, loved by God. And the way we see them and treat them changes. But I receive mercy for this reason. Um, oh, sorry, sorry. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Again, so he orients here the, the primary purpose of Jesus coming into the world. And then he identifies himself amongst the worst. Like, he's like, hey, I wasn't like top of the heap. I was pretty good and God saved me. He's like, no, no, no. Like, the humility that Paul carries here about who he is apart from Christ. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I love that the end of that story ends in worship. Whenever you get in touch with the grace and mercy of Jesus that poured out for you on the cross that has literally saved you from your sins, from Satan's sin, death, and hell, the, the natural response is your eyes go to him and you worship. To my king, oh, Jesus, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I wanted to preach this sermon this morning because I, I really feel like we have to come back continually to what is the gospel, right? Who is Jesus? Why did Jesus come? Because if we're not careful, over time we might get away from the central aspect of who Jesus was, why he came. And Paul says it clearly that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, period, end of sentence. That is why he came the only gospel that Jesus preached was the gospel of the kingdom, the good news about the kingdom of God breaking in, in the person of Jesus. And at the heart of that kingdom was the redemptive purpose of God to save us from our sins. So, so Jesus like, ties the redemptive purpose of God to the kingdom of God and says, you cannot have this without that. Right? If, if what you're preaching doesn't include the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection, then you're not preaching the kingdom. You might be preaching a lot of good things, but if it doesn't get to the heart of human beings to radically change them on the inside, it's a different work than what Jesus was doing. Jesus' greatest care was the eternal destiny of human beings. Which is why many times he came into contact with people who had massive problems, and the first thing he did was speak to their spiritual state. 
He's like, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, that's great, but I really need, I'm blind, right? But it, and you, you got to think everybody's like, Jesus, did you notice he was blind? He's like, yes, I noticed he was blind, but the most important thing in his life that he would come to know the Father's love, right? Because that's the kind of blindness that is the death that lasts forever. All of our sickness, all of our pain, all that stuff, y'all, will be temporary at some point. It will end, and we will be with him. But death of the Spirit is what Jesus came to do. The cross and the resurrection, they center the redemptive work of Jesus at the heart of the church. What is the church about? Well, the church is about the work that Jesus came to do. He says, as the Father sent me, so I send you into the world to do what I did. Scott McKnight would say this, he says, any kind of redemptive, and he puts quotes on that, activity that does not deal with sin, that does not find its strength in the cross, that does not see the primary agent as Jesus, not us, and that does not see it all as God's new creation life unleashed is not kingdom redemption, even if it's liberating and good and for the common good. Jesus had this idea of the kingdom of God with redemption at the heart, that he was going to save us from our sins, and it is the central truth of the scriptures. And, and I think in our day and age, friends, we have to reject this false choice of like evangelism versus justice work. That you have to choose one or the other or that one is more important for these days and one was more important back then. And it's like this thing that um, uh, Corey Russell said when he's here that the, the foundation of the throne of God in heaven is justice and righteousness. Right? Justice and righteousness that we hold on to. And it's interesting that Satan would trick us to think that we would have to let go of righteousness to grab on to justice. Right? That we can only hold one of those when Jesus holds on to both. And he is our righteousness. It's not something we earn. He wants to give his righteousness to us, but he cares about both. It's a false choice, either or. Jesus never puts us to that choice. He never says either this work or this work. He says both really matter, but the thing that's really important is how does that work get done? What is the order of that work? And I think if we could say something about our generation, maybe the younger generation, I think we have struggled to get the order of that work right. And I think Jesus is calling the church to reorder our work to say, listen, my primary goal in the world is to save sinners for eternity. And out of that, yes, will come all sorts of beautiful justice, reconciliation, righteousness. All, all the, he wants to bring order to the world, yes, but it is built on this reality that I am God's son sent into the world to save you from your sins. I want to change your heart, right? So I want to work through this and, and kind of show this in the scriptures. There's multiple comments where it says that Jesus came to. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to jump around a little bit. Luke 19, 10. If you turn there, this is a really short one, but this is Jesus speaking. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Isn't it interesting? He didn't say, I came here to solve every justice issue in the world. Jesus lived in one of the most unjust societies ever seen on the earth. He was crucified by an unjust government. He understood the radical wickedness of that society and yet he's still saying, what I, what I came for first is your heart. I came for your heart. I want to win your heart. I want to change you on the inside because your spirit was made for God. It needs to come alive again so that you can know him. I came to seek and save the lost. This is about his pursuit, right? His primary action 
in the world. And he ties it in John 3. He says, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's been born again. So he said, unless I do this in you, you won't even be able to see the justice that I have for the world. It actually comes through me. John 3, 16, we all memorize this verse in Sunday school. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved by him. So Jesus' first um, entrance into the world wasn't to condemn the world or to judge the world. He said, I didn't come to judge the world. That comes next. And friends, there's no justice without judgment. I know that's a hard word for us to hear, but judgment declares good and evil in which side you're on. That's how you get justice, is you have to actually slice through. Jesus said, no, 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 this time I came that you would know me in my power, in my presence. And then, guess what? There will be justice someday. I will bring it. For God didn't send his son of the world to condemn the world. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. See, this is, this is so important because I think in some ways we, we've been tricked into believing that people love the light. People love the light. They just need to see Christians in the light. We just need to see Christians doing good work and loving people and doing all this stuff. And the, No, no, like Jesus, this is his words. He says people loved the darkness. They couldn't even see the Son of God in flesh, a man who never sinned, never spoke a foul word, never dishonored anybody, and they still didn't believe God. So if we think that we can live better than Jesus in the world so that people would know the hope we have, like, we're fooling ourselves. Jesus says, no, no, they have to come to know that I am the light and I will cast out the darkness in them. And then they'll want the light. That's what happened in you when you met Jesus. You changed from loving the darkness to wanting the light. Like, that's what happens. Galatians 4 4 and 5 says, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That is the foundational work for Jesus in the world, is to seek and save the lost. Well, what else does the Bible say about how he came? It says that Jesus came to serve rather than be served in Matthew 20. Verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the first is about Jesus' pursuit. The second isn't a competing thing. You don't get the choice to either serve the poor or do evangelism. Jesus says, here's how I do what I do. I do it through service. I pursue the lost through radical, sacrificial, self-giving love in the world. That's how I do it. So it's not one or the other. We don't trade this. We actually go into the world as servants to seek and save. So he's like, this is about his posture toward the world, which it could have been otherwise. He could have come as a conquering king and literally just wiped out everyone who, who disagreed with him or didn't want him. But instead, Philippians says that he took um, the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. So our posture in the world is one of, of service 
and like radical love of our neighbors. But if we trade that for speaking the name of Jesus, telling people about his work on the cross, the kingdom of heaven, then, then we've lost a major part of the story. And really, everything we build without that as the foundation is sure to crumble. Because most of the stuff we desire in the world is the work of God, not the work of man. Stuff that we can't do, but we can be sent into the world to carry that as servants. And the last one is Jesus came to destroy the devil and his works. 1 John 3.8, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Friends, where, where does the work of the devil exist? It doesn't exist out there. It exists in here. So he, he came to destroy the devil's work. The original work of the devil was to get into the heart of human beings, get them to sin against God, separate us from him. Jesus came into the world to get to that place to destroy the work of Satan in our hearts so that the work of God could move outward. So what that tells me is if we don't deal with the hearts of human beings, we'll never get to the point of dealing with systemic issues. Right? We'll never get to these grandiose ideas of justice and reconciliation if we aren't also dealing with the hearts of human beings. Because human beings, if we're left in our sinful state, do you know what we'll keep doing? We'll keep sinning, right? We'll, we'll just keep going and our sinning will multiply person by person, family by family, street by street, business by business, nation by... I mean, it would just keep multiplying generation by generation, Hebrews 2 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And he might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. If in our hearts we are still enslaved to sin, we will never do the work that God wants done in the world. So, systemic evil, right? Systemic injustice. These are, are buzzwords in our culture today, and I believe they're real, but sin is the system under every other system. Systemic sin, the sin that infected our forefathers and foremother at, in the garden, which has spread throughout humanity, through all of history, that is the systemic evil under every other system. So you could get rid of every other system, but if you don't touch sin, you know what we will do? We will just build new systems of evil and injustice and unrighteousness. We have to deal with that. And, and so I have to use the Greg Dewey phrase here, don't hear what I'm not saying, all right? You should all integrate this, this sentence into your language. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying Christians should not be involved in justice work and really reconciliation. In fact, you will not find a church who has been more deeply engaged in that work, but I also just want to remind us that our hope is not in that work. Our hope is not that we get good enough, get enough resources, get enough power that we can take on the flesh, the world, and the devil. No, no, no. We will get beat to death if we do it that way. I've watched it happen. It's like symptoms and disease, right? If you deal with the symptoms but not the disease, what do you get? The disease just manifests in new symptoms and more symptoms and different symptoms and usually in worse symptoms. So we've done a lot of work in this church helping organizations that deal with addiction, right? So you can deal with someone's drug addiction, but at the base of that is depression or mental illness or shame or wounds or trauma. If you don't deal with those things, you know what will happen? A new addiction will sprout. 
from those things, and it might be different, but most times it's like Jesus says, you clean the house, if you don't put something else in, guess what's coming back? Seven more things that are worse than the original. So we have to address the disease. Jesus came to demolish the system of sin, and it's time for us to wake up I think, to the fact that somewhere along the way we accepted the lie that to share the good news of the rescue of Jesus was somehow either offensive or irrelevant to the work that we're trying to do. And I don't think it's offensive, and I don't think it's irrelevant. Paul says this in Romans 1. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Um, I said in the first service, it's one of the first verses I memorized as an intern at Belle Isle Community Church um, with Greg Dewey and Todd Lovelace. as my, my mentors, um, which I wish you guys could have known these guys at like 26. Um, it's kind of hilarious, and I'm like, man, I don't know how we survived those days. But, um, but anyways, but I memorized this verse. You know why? Because they were sending me into like high school campuses to share the gospel with teenagers. That doesn't sound scary until you do it. And you're like, I like walk on these campuses, Edmond Santa Fe High School. I'm like, I feel like a freak alien. They're like, who are you? Why are you here? You're 19. Are you like trying to pick up girls, like, I mean, it was just like, everybody was just like, you should not be here, and then I'm like, hey, you want to have a Bible study where I can tell you about Jesus, and they're like, no, and I'm like, all right, Lord, like, and and everything in me would not want to, like, like, share the gospel with kids, I just want to talk about anything else, talk about their family, talk about sports, talk about, then, then to get down to the most important thing and tell them about my love for Jesus, how he changed my life, And I had to fight, I just like memorized this verse, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation. There is no salvation apart from the power of Jesus, his work on the cross. So I can't be ashamed of it. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater? of this age has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world for since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is where I'm, I'm becoming more and more and more convinced, is that I have too often trusted in the wisdom of men, in systems, strategy, and can we get enough money, can we get the right people in the room, and if we do, we could change all this stuff, and it's just not true. It just doesn't work. But the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men, and the weakness of God is stronger and the strength of men. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you who were wise according to the worldly standards, not many of you were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but can I just add, but even if you were, or even if you have acquired those things, it is nothing compared to the power of God. I don't care who you are right now, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, those guys can't do anything about the, the core issues of our society that face us and really just baffle us But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, because who became to us the wisdom of God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let no one who boasts, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." 
And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, not with a big education and lots of letters before my name. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. For I decided, Paul actually had to make a decision. Paul was highly educated. Paul's like, listen, I was Pharisee of Pharisees. I was trained at Gamaliel's feet. I, I am like, I'm the next in line as like the chief rabbi of Israel. He could have been a really big deal, but he decided to not pursue the wisdom and the knowledge of the world. He said, I decided to know nothing except for Jesus Christ crucified. It was a core decision of his life. I think in these days, with all the, the confusion of the world and all the explanations that we might gather from the systems of the world, I think what might change us and the church and our communities is if we would decide to know nothing except for Jesus. Be like, what do you think about this? You're like, I don't know. I just know Jesus. I know he loves me. I know he loves you. I know he's desperate to heal you. That's all I know. I don't know anything else. I have nothing else. And friends, it seems today that many Christians, myself included, it's easy to know everything except for the power of the gospel. We know about justice. We know about reconciliation. We know about inequity in education. We know about immigration. We know about incarceration. We know about the plight of the poor. But the question is, do you know him? It's the only question that really matters. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Do you know about the cross? The power of the cross? Do we know the power of Jesus to save? I'm going to invite the band to come back up. I want to tell you in closing about a man named Walter Wyatt. Uh, Walter Wyatt was a pilot, and um, he would fly back and forth from Nassau, um, the Bahamas, to Miami, or from Miami to Nassau, which usually took about 65 minutes. But on December 5th, 1986, he attempted it after thieves had come in and stolen all of his navigational equipment out of his little beechcraft, and he thought, you know what, I've done this flight so many times, it'll be fine, I'll just like visually fly, it'll be okay. With only a compass and a handheld radio, he flew into the skies blackened by storm clouds. When the compass began to gyrate, Walter concluded that he was headed in the wrong direction. He flew his plane below the clouds, hoping to spot something, but soon he knew he was lost. He put out a mayday call, which brought a Coast Guard Falcon search plane to lead him to an emergency landing strip about six miles away. Suddenly, Wyatt's right engine coughed its last and died. The fuel tank had, dry, had run dry. About 8 p.m., Wyatt could do little more than glide the plane into the water. He survived the crash, but his plane disappeared quickly, leaving him bobbing on the water in a leaky life vest. With blood on his forehead, he floated on his back. Suddenly, he felt a hard bump against his body. A shark had found him. Wyatt kicked the intruder and wondered if he would survive the night. He managed to stay afloat for the next 10 hours. Friends, that is a feat of human strength and perseverance. Can you imagine floating in the ocean for 10 hours circled by sharks? Humans can do pretty amazing things. He, say, he survived the night after 10 hours. In the morning, he saw no airplanes, but in the water, a dorsal fin was headed for him, twisting. He felt the height of a shark brush against him. In a moment, two more bull sharks sliced through the water toward him. Again, he kicked off the sharks, and they veered away, but he was nearing exhaustion. 
Then he heard the sound of a distant aircraft. When it was within a half mile, he waved his orange vest. The pilot radioed back to Cape York, which was about 12 minutes away, and he told the boats to get moving. He's surrounded by sharks. They're coming after him. When the boat pulled alongside Wyatt, a ladder was dropped over the side. He climbed wearily out of the water and onto the ship where he fell to his knees and he kissed the deck. He had been saved. He didn't need encouragement or better techniques. Nothing less than outside intervention could have rescued him from sure death. And how much are we like Walter Wyatt? (laughs) He got into his plane just like we kind of get into life. Like our instruments have been stolen by a thief. We don't know where we're going or how to get there. We have this sense they were stolen by a thief and a liar. We flew and we adjusted and we tried and we tried and we tried, but the elements and the realities were stronger than our abilities, and we too crashed into the sea, and we're bleeding, and our lives, apart from Jesus, reflect this in our broken relationships, in our shame and guilt over sin and the wounds we carry from life. And the sharks are circling, and these sharks have names like abuse, anger, violence, addiction, shame, self-harm, suicide, lying, gluttony, promiscuity, all these things that beset us, and we need to be rescued. And we can't rescue ourselves. Yeah, if we get rescued, that might not fix everything. We might just jump back into the plane with no instruments, but the grace of God is so good because he's like, you crash that plane in that water and I will save you time after time after time after time. There's no shortage of rescue with God. But if we don't accept the rescue, we will die. We'll die apart from him. And not just die physically, we will die spiritually, and that death will have long-lasting ramifications in us and around us. Only outside intervention helps you. And it just hit me, friends, that um, we have to be about this message, that human beings are in need of a rescuer. And luckily for us, there is one. So today, you might be far from God. You might be living in sin. You might have never bowed your knee to Jesus, or you might have bowed your knee to him a thousand times and you can't bear to do it one more time, but I just want to invite you. Do it again. (laughs) Come back. That's the message. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I just want to tell you, Jesus is good. He's kind. He's a healer. He's a restorer. He can and will forgive any sins you have committed and any you will commit this day forward. He can heal any wound you've received. But you have to leave the life you've been living and come to him. And there's simply no other way. And friends, that is our message to a lost and dying world. Is not that we can fix everything, but that there's a name under heaven by which men might be saved. His name's Jesus. So today... There's lots of things in our world that need to be fixed, friends. The problem is I can't fix them. I can't fix the immigration issue. I can't fix our education system. I can't fix the incarceration problem in our state. I can't fix racial injustice. I can't fix poverty. I can't even fix myself. And if I can't fix myself, how dare I go into the world like I have anything to do with fixing the world? But I know the man who can. His name's Jesus, and he has the power to save you. 
And together, I think his love poured into our hearts and then poured into our neighbor's hearts, street by street, house by house. I think that can change so much about our world. So I want you to stand to your feet. I want to pray for you. If you've never met Jesus, I would love for you to meet him today because I think he'll change your life forever. If you've been struggling with any kind of issue, I would love for you to come to him. He's just saying, come to me. It doesn't matter what your issue is. The answer is to come to him. And friends, until we find Jesus as the answer to all of our problems, we will just keep banging our head against the wall. So I'm going to pray. Jesus, we love you. We worship you today. I thank you, Lord, that you haven't put the world's problems on our back. You haven't asked us to fix the world. You have asked us to radically and sacrificially love every human being we come into contact with. And that's enough. And so would you help us, Lord? Would you help us to give up our grandiose ideas, our savior complexes, and just know that knowing you is enough and letting your love flow through us is enough. So I just pray, Lord, if there's anyone in this room who needs to know you today, that you would meet them right where they are. We just receive today, Lord, your love, your grace, your mercy, which overflowed on the cross to us. I pray for the church, for this church, for Skyline, for the church of Oklahoma City, for the church in Oklahoma, for the church in the United States of America, Lord, that we would return to this core reality and allow it to radically change us in these days. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's teaching at Skyline AKC. Again, here at Skyline, we are a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. So if you would like any more information on that, please go to our website at skylineokc.com and connect with us via that way.